and uh, and it'll be fun. Even even if it's for no other reason than to walk around with that little shopping cart, that is worth the fifty minutes. <laughs> Plus, you guys have never been up to my church either, so you know, come up and hang out. That's literally all that's happening at the church this week is the garage sale. So, are you guys ready? All right, let's pray. Abba, Father, I love you, and I thank you for your goodness to us. And Lord, I thank you for bringing us all to this room this morning. And I just ask that you would be uniquely present in this room. That we would sense your nearness, that we would be awakened to the subtle movements of your spirit, that the still small voice that speaks would be loud in our ears this morning. Soften our hearts, open us, prepare us. I pray that your word would find good soil on which to land and be planted in each of our hearts this morning. this with me guys our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day your daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever Amen. And I think I forgot. Give us this day our daily bread. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> I think I skipped that phrase. <laughs> I, uh, I have been um, trying to teach old prayers to my kids. Um, so at dinner time, we pray. We thank God for the food, but then, then we pray the, the Lord's Prayer every time we eat dinner together. And, uh, and once we get that one down, we'll move on to some other ancient prayers. I think that one's probably the most important, <laughs> you know, to start with. It is, I know we are Pentecostals, and so praying prayers that other people have written feels a little bit awkward to us. But we need to understand that the entirety of the 2,000 years the church has been around it has been praying written prayers. And before that, the Jewish people prayed written prayers, a lot of them out of the Psalms. They would just pray the Psalms. Um, they would pray, like, for instance, several places in the Scripture um, where it talks about they were saying prayers. The truth is what it says is they were saying the prayers because there were specific prayers that they would pray specific psalms that they would pray almost every day, if not multiple times a day. And they weren't saying their own, their own words as much as they were saying things they had been taught to pray. And uh, we kind of flinch about that, like, well, you know, I, if, if I'm praying someone else's words, how is it real? Well, that's up to you. You make it real or not real, 
in and of yourself. So when you pray someone else's prayer and you inhabit that prayer, then it's going to be an honest, real prayer from your heart. But when you pray someone else's prayer and just read it off by rote, like, then of course it's not going to be power. It's not going to affect you in any way. But I think that us as a, as a generation, the truth is it was our parents' generation, my parents' generation, not your parents' generation, my parents' generation, who really stopped praying those prayers in mass. And now we have generations that have no idea how to pray. Because those prayers were the way that the church of old taught people how to pray. Um, on uh, November 4th, we are doing a prayer and prophetic thing here at uh, First Assembly. It's a uh, like all day Saturday kind of a thing. We're going to be having multiple teachers. My dad's teaching. I'm teaching. Um, Daisy Bailey is teaching, which if you've never met her or don't know who she is, I would like go find her and become her best friend if I were you. I mean, just for reals. Um, she is the most amazing prayer warrior I have ever met in the flesh. Ever. And uh, she's she's incredible. But she's this little, quiet, unassuming lady. But man, when she starts praying, you just see demons run. So anyway, go find her, meet her. Or just come to this thing on November 4th and and, and, and be there. And the way it's going to work is there's going to be four class sessions, two before lunch and two after, plus lunch is provided. Um, but there's going to be four class sessions, and there are five or six teachers. Rhonda Hazlitt's going to be teaching as well, and also Nancy Honeytree will be teaching. Um, so we have five five teachers. There's four classes, uh, four you know different classes you can go to, and then. All during that day, separate from the classes, uh, prophecy rooms are going to be running. So you will sign up for a time to go into the prophecy room uh, during the day and then uh, and be ministered to there in the prophecy room at the same time. Are you all familiar with that concept of prophecy rooms? Basically, this is how it works. We put some prophetic people who know how to operate in the prophetic gift. We stick them in a room or a couple rooms, depending on how many we have. And then we have groups of people go in and sit and the prophetic people pray and just relay whatever the Lord gives them for those people. And we record it and we give it to you. I mean, you're there and they're ministering to you personally, but then you have it to take with you out of the, out, uh, out of the day. And it's something I used to do at least once a year for the youth group. Uh, uh, and I think it's an, a, just a powerful ministry thing. We just did this exact same model in Fremont a few months ago. And it was an awesome, awesome day. So uh, this all of the teaching on that day is going to be built around prayer and hearing the voice of God. Um, so... Did I say Pastor Ron's teaching too? He's right. going to be teaching too. Um, so it, it would not be the waste of a day if you guys are going to be in town or whatever. It's November 4th. Um, is that youth convention? Oh, man. That sucks. Sorry, guys.
You're going to miss it. I'm telling you because it's going to be a fantastic day. I didn't set the date and I wouldn't have set it for that day because I'm doing a wedding that afternoon. So I'm just going to be here for the morning and I'm going to have to go up to the back to Fremont and do a wedding. I mean, I could. Wedding via Skype. <laughs> All right, folks, I got to make this quick. I got another class coming. So uh, say well, this, say this, do this, this, now kiss, we're done. Okay. Yeah. Do this. <laughs> now kiss. <laughs> that's, that's how a lot of weddings want to be right now. Like, people would be like, we want our wedding to last less than 20 minutes. <laughs> like, Really? They're like, well, we want lots of time for reception. We want the the ceremonies just real short. My wedding was an, like an hour and a half. I think somewhere in between there is a good. Honestly, like the most, I don't want to say the worst wedding I've ever been to, but it was it was terrible. <laughs> my uh, my cousin married a uh, Mexican woman, and you know, she's Catholic. And the wedding was entirely in Spanish, so it was a Catholic wedding mass entirely in Spanish. It was like two hours long, and I didn't know a word they were saying. I just watched everyone else. Oh, we're kneeling right now. All oh, right. okay, kneel. Oh, we're standing right now. Okay, okay. stand. <laughs> Repeat for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> it was off. Yes. But this um, this particular wedding is going to be really really fun because they're taking up their taking a lot of pieces from ancient Jewish weddings. So they're going to have a chuppah. I'm going to be standing under a under a canopy for this wedding. I'm so excited. They're going to be blowing the shofar. The bride does not know what time the wedding is. She just has to be ready. That's awesome. Yes, because that's what they did back in the day. They would say, they would say, so she doesn't know what time the wedding's going to be. She just has to be at home ready. Yes, she just has to be so, ready at home, that's two a.m. waiting. And then what's going to happen is this is how the wedding's going because that's how that's. But see, you know Jesus. You know, remember the the parable of the the ten foolish and the ten wise. Okay, or five foolish, five wise. Yeah, five, five, five. Anyway, yeah, because twenty bridesmaids. I mean, that's a heck of a lot. So anyway, I mean, ten is pretty big all by itself, but. Anyway, so we have the five foolish, five wise. Okay, what would they? And they were waiting for the bridegroom. That's what they would do: is the bride would prepare herself, and the bridesmaids would prepare themselves, and then they would wait. And they would have an idea, kind of, of like the day, but not the time. And the groom didn't even know the time. The groom was waiting on his dad to say, "Go get your girl." So that's what's happening in this wedding is the groom is going to show up at the at the wedding. I know what time it is. Obviously. And the groom's dad knows what time it is. But the bride and groom do not know what time it, this wedding is. So so they were t- they they were told after lunch. So it's like she has all morning to get ready but but that's like after that she's just going to be waiting. It's like spontaneous She lives 3 blocks from the church. So she's going to be at home waiting with her bridesmaids and the groom is going to come and he's going to be there at the church. And then his dad is going to walk over to him and say, okay, it's time. 
And then we're going to blow the shofar and say, go and get your bride. And the groom's going to go down to their, down to her house, get her, bring her back to the church. And, and, um, it's really cool. They've got all these kids that are, that like when the, when the bride comes, the kids are supposed to like run back to the back and wave flags and be like, the bride is here. And just like this whole thing, it's going to be really fun. And no, they're not doing that. Cause that's a, that's a more modern Jewish tradition. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. That's, that's a very, that's, I mean, I say modern, it's still like a thousand years old, but it's more modern than they're going back to the, the wedding, wedding tradition in the time of Jesus. And the reason they're doing it is because Jesus used the Jewish wedding tradition as a prophetic picture of his second coming over and over and over again. And you can already think about it. What did Jesus say? He says, you've asked me when is the day and when is the, and he says, I don't know what the day or the hour is, but only my father who's in heaven. Okay. That's, that was a Jewish wedding tradition thing. So, okay, this makes so, so much more sense. <laughs> so Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is waiting for his dad to say, go get your girl. That's what he's waiting for. And then, wow. and right. he's going to come get it. I never told you guys this. No, oh my gosh. You so did I tell, did I tell you about the last the supper? Universe. Oh, you told me about the Haven't amazing. I told you, have, oh, I, have oh, I told you about the last oh. supper? Okay. At the last supper. Okay. Jesus was performing. A, an engagement, a betrothal ritual. They all knew that, but we, but we don't because we read it in the sin. So when Jesus says, it takes the cup and says, drink all of this, all of you, and then says, do, uh, you know, my father, uh, you know, you trust, you, uh, you also know me if, you know, and I'm trying to remember exactly how the whole thing, how the whole spiel goes, but he's like, if, if I, uh, if I leave you, I will come back and I will take you again to myself. You know, that whole thing where he does the, that whole discussion. Are you with me? Biblically? Okay, this isn't, it's in the book of John, I'm sure. Um, that whole thing, that whole discussion was the betrothal ritual that they did in that time. Because this is how it would work, is the groom would come, they would have this big engagement party. Most of the time, the bride and groom will not have met until this like at all until this, I know, right? It, it was because everything was set up by their parents. Your mom and dad decided who you were going to marry. <laughs> oh my gosh, he's so handsome. Look at him. Anyway, so they would meet for the very first time at this betrothal ceremony. And then the groom, if she's acceptable to him, the groom would stand up and he would take a glass of wine and he would take a drink of it. And then he would say, and he would put it down and he would say, drink all of this. Looking at his bride. And he would say, he would say, drink all of this. He says, you don't really know me, but you know my dad. You know his reputation. And if you accept my, my proposal, then I'll go and I'll prepare a place for you. And then I will come and I will take you with me that where I am, there you may be also. Okay, and then, and then if she accepted, she would walk up, take the cup, and drink the whole thing. That was her yes. Okay? That was her yes. Chuck, 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 Chuck. She would drink, she would drink it all the way to the bottom. Now, I, I think it, I can already tell you, my wife 
would have probably like walked up to the table and been like, I'll think about it and like walk around <laughs> and like, you know, like take it, just kind of swirl it around, uh, you know, maybe, you know, and then like walk away and just, and have me just going, God, oh my gosh, you know. But anyway, she would drink the whole thing and then, and then he would go and he would build an addition onto his father's house. In my father's house, there are many mansions. That word mansion, okay, is not the word mansion. <laughs> it's, and it's, and so, like some, some Bible translations said many rooms, okay, um, and that's a, a lot closer to, the, but it means bridal suite. That's what it means. And he says, so he says, I will go and I'll prepare a place for you. So he would, the groom would go and he would build this bridal suite for them. And, the, and it would be connected to his father's house or on his father's property, okay? And that's where they would live because for the first year of their marriage, uh, neither one of them was supposed to do any work. Their entire job was to get her pregnant. I'm dead serious. That's their entire job, okay, during that first year. Okay, is they we want children because that's the whole point of marriage. Okay, for an entire year, other people would feed them. They would other people would bring food and prepare food, and I'm dead serious. Anyway, talk about a honeymoon. I mean, think about it. So. Here it is. So that's what they would do. They would live in this room for for like a year together. But he couldn't he couldn't go and get her. You know, people would be watching it as he's building it. People would be saying, "Ooh, it's almost done." And you know that. So they would be letting her know, "Hey, it's this is gonna happen any day." You know, and she's over there like, "I can't wait." And the the dad would come and inspect the bridal suite father of the groom and he'd be looking he'd look it over and then he would say okay it's time when this place was ready he would say go get your girl okay it's ready go and i think i'm sure they he played around with this as well where like okay it's ready but we don't have the whole feast put together because weddings lasted for seven days so, Bruh. right, and and the wedding—it's a seven-day-long party, and the the groom's family was feeding the entire family, like everyone that came to the wedding, for like a week. That's what they were doing. That's why Jesus was. That's why Jesus was. Uh, oh, by the way, the bride and groom were like, they would be there at the beginning, like for the first few hours, and then it's like, get out of here. Okay. Everybody else would party, and Brent and Groom were. That was my question. I'm like, well, there was other. I mean, first day you married. There was also there was also a thing where. I mean, it's, it's kind of gross, but. Yeah. He would have to. He would have to prove that she was like a virgin, whatever, and that the wedding had been consummated. That had to be proved like the first day. So yeah, because that was a thing. But anyway. It's yeah. It was yeah. And everybody would be like, "Woo!" You know, just like, "Okay." It's that's. I mean, it's all okay. Right? Exactly. I'm. I'm good with. You know what? No, that that part can go away. All right. We're, that's just peculiar. But anyway, 
And that's not going to be a part of this wedding we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. No, no, no. So anyway. But, so, so what, that's what Jesus would say was, and that's, that's why Jesus said, drink all this, all of you. This is the covenant in my blood, etc. And then he says, you know, my father, you, you believe in my father, believe also in me. In my father's home, there are many, there's a bridal suite and I'm going away. I'm going to make, um, I'm going to make preparation for you. And then I will come back and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. That whole thing was the get down on one knee and make me the happiest man in the world speech. That's what that was. So at the Last Supper, Jesus was formally proposing to the disciples, I am the groom and the church is the, is the bride. And that was happening. And they, when they took, so next time you take communion, you are reenacting Jesus' betrothal to the church. Okay? And the price that Jesus paid for the bride, because he said, this is a picture of my death, which is, which is the bride price. It's the price that he paid for his bride, was his own flesh and blood. Okay, that was another piece that they always did is, the groom didn't receive the bride and give nothing to the to the father's family. The father's he would give something to the father's family. A lot of times, the 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 bride's family would give the groom things as well. But yeah, so there's a whole lot of really interesting connections there. But uh, oh, I love that. Every time I take communion, I'm just like I do. <laughs> <laughs> I really do, Jesus. <laughs> I think the cup should be made of the wafer. That way you can just throw the whole thing in your mouth. <laughs> no, they don't. They're made of plastic. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> the communion wafers. The the wafers that they use here are like I always I always think of them as the crust off of a pop tart. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like, that's what they taste like. They're so dry. They're so nasty. I've never had a non-stale communion bread. Well, at at our church, what we have done is we put a loaf of bread out there and we tear it up ahead of time and then you just dip it in the. We did that at a retreat, but we had a lot of bread, so I thought like I was chewing communion break. Solid 30 minutes. And, and there was bumblebees. First fruit <laughs> they had like actual bread. Like our second, this year they had like, okay, here's some, here's some white bread. Just here's some, here's some Wonder Bread. Yeah, some bread. Yeah, bread. Yeah, Roll it up. Yeah. Tortillas. Yeah. I knew a guy that, that, did the the youth group that I belonged to? We were in the midst of a crazy renewal, and at its height in 1997, we had between 550 and 600 kids on a Wednesday night. And that that was the height of that thing. But there was a whole lot of hyper spirituality going on at the time, and I had a friend who. 
insisted on his first date with his with this girl that he was that they take communion together on their first date. And he forgot to bring the elements, so they used Doritos and Mountain Dew. I don't think that's okay. I was just like, but anyway, what? What? Do you not think that was okay? I don't. I mean, I'm come so on. Awkward, it's just like, uh, then just don't do it, okay? I mean, it's a date. I mean, I'm not offended. I'm just confused. It's a date. I don't. You know what the? Okay, you need to understand. That in, in the youth group that I grew up in, dating was a sin. Period. Wait, what? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the youth group I grew up in, if you were dating, that oh, meant you were obviously having sex and therefore what? you are a sin. I'm serious. Did I'm just telling you. Like if you went to the prom, oh, yeah, the prom was the devil. Exactly. Okay? That's why we did a prom alternative. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Prom alternative? Are you kidding me? Why don't you just teach kids to be light in the midst of darkness? No, we don't do that. We keep all of our light over here. A long way away from the darkness. What? Did you do like a whole banquet dinner? We did. We did. And there was no dancing. Because that also, that also was sinful. That also was sinful. Anyway. It w- yes, dancing, dancing, dancing is just vertical sex. That's all it is. That's that's that's. I'm serious. I'm just telling. You. I'm just telling you. That's that is how that is how the church used to feel about it. Anyway, so it's like dirty dancing. So if when we. If we were going to engage in this dangerous, sinful activity called dating, we had to super spiritualize it. The problem is, you got guys hear me on this, because especially if you're going to go, if any of you are going to be youth pastors, etc., do people a favor and lighten the load for the dates, okay? Let's not packet full of spiritual meaning because all you're doing is encouraging people to make promises to in to uh in uh invest those moments with far more emotional energy than they deserve okay so let's chill i tell people all the time you should have tons of guys and tons of girls they should be all, all that are all friends of yours my issue isn't you hanging out with people of the opposite sex. I think you should. My issue is when you are giving more emotional power to your relationship with that guy or that girl than you should be, than you have any right to at the age of 15 or 16 years old. You aren't going to get married right now. Okay? You're not going to get married right now. So do not begin the journey toward marriage right now either. Wait until you're actually an adult to start making adult decisions. Fine, go on dates. That's fine with me. But the minute it becomes I am yours and you are mine, you're in trouble. Because there's only one direction that goes. It's either headed towards marriage and or sex or it's headed towards heartbreak. And there's, no, there's no two ways about it. There's only one road. It's one spectrum. That's all that... I am yours and you are mine ever does. It's either headed towards 
I'm going to really hurt you, or it's headed towards we're going to be together forever. And when you're 16, you don't have the emotional maturity to make that decision. Not to mention social maturity to be able to make that decision. Okay, so, and don't throw all these people out there to me that they they started dating when they were 14 and they, they ended up married or whatever. Good for them. Okay, that's that is a fluke. That is not normal. I'm happy for them. It's just, you know, my my sister, Brittany, and her husband, they started dating when they were like, I mean, they were, became interested with each other when he was like 16 and she was like 14. And that's They didn't start dating until she was 16 because she was like, I am not dating anyone until I'm 16 because my daddy said no. Okay, but not everybody is a Brittany. Uh, that's just the truth. She could have held anybody at bay. That's just the way she was. She's like, nope, I love Jesus more than you. Okay? Yeah, because she's awesome. But she is. But that's not most people. That's not most people. And most kids. So when I was in youth, I was constantly telling people, listen, guys, keep it light and in the light. Okay? <laughs> we do not need, we do not need these these deep relationships, and don't be caught in some basement somewhere with some person. That is a bad idea. Do let your relationship be where people can see it, and do not make promises you aren't allowed to make. Anyway, all right, I'm, let's get to Philippians. We we. Okay, uh, did we get to verse 11? The gift of righteousness. That's what I'm trying to remember. Okay. <laughs> I may just cut the whole first half of the, this off the podcast because there's nothing to do. I don't know. Anyway. So anyway, verse 11, having been filled. Now remember, we are, we are still, we are in the prayer of the Apostle Paul. Okay, he is praying for them. And this I pray, he said, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Okay, continuing with the prayer, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Okay, this is the gift of righteousness that we have been given by Christ that it would be in obvious manifestation out of us. We talked about this last time, I think. But here's the truth. If you're not doing good works, if you're not manifesting the righteousness of Christ, it's not in you. Okay? you got to get that because we love in the Protestant church to be like, by grace through faith alone, that's how it works, and it doesn't matter whatever else happens, it's fine. I go to church every Sunday. That is not enough. I'm telling you right now. But don't get it backwards. Okay, backwards is I better be good or God won't love me. That's wrong. That's backwards. We are filled with the fruit of righteousness through Christ Jesus. You don't have the capacity for righteousness until you're already in Christ. Yes. 
Righteousness is not a finish line that we have to walk across before we find before we get the prize, which is Jesus. No. It is our relationship with Jesus that gives us righteousness. Are you with me, folks? When And when we are connected to Jesus, I say this I like all the time. This is one of my favorite things to say is that anything connected to Jesus will change. And if you are encountering Jesus, if you are connected to Jesus, you are going to be becoming like him. You are going to be on the journey of becoming like him. And if you're not on the journey of becoming like him, then you are not connected to Jesus. And you need to get back to the gospel and get yourself saved. And I think there are Christians that just sit and sour in some kind of idea that, well, I'm a saved person, but they're not becoming like Jesus at all. And I would say to them, you're not a saved person. This isn't about saying a prayer a long time ago in some day and time in the distant past and then just sitting and souring and becoming less and less like Jesus over time because you think you're okay. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul said he was working out his salvation with fear and trembling. What that means is we are recognizing the truth that the divine reality which created the entire universe is at work inside of me and I stand in awe of his glory and his majesty being made manifest in and out of my life more and more and more over time. Okay, that's what he meant. That's what that means, working out my salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean that he's got like a long list of check boxes that he has to you know, check off every day. Did my devotions? Did my whatever? I, I shared my faith with one person today. Check. That's not, that's, that's the backwards picture. The reason he has quote unquote fear and trembling is not because he's worried that he's not saved. His fear and trembling comes from the knowledge that he has of the God who's at work in him. And if we really understand how massive and how powerful and how beautiful this God is, we don't have any choice but to be in fear and trembling. I'll tell you what, at these moments, when I'm coming to preach the word of God, or when I am, if, if, if I ever, ever do not approach this, the handling of the word of God with some level of fear and trembling, I don't mean that I'm just like, you know, I'm so nervous. No, I just mean, if I don't, if I'm not connected with this incredible thing that's been put in my hands to give to you, the grace that I've been given to steward to you, if I don't understand how precious it is, and if that doesn't make me have a little ounce of fear and trembling, then I'm a fool. I think of the word of God as radioactive material. Okay. You do not take the proper precautions in the handling of radioactive material. Bad things will happen. Does that make sense? Okay. The word of God is far more potent than that. And we've got to be careful with it. And we've got to respect it for how glorious it is. Have you ever been around somebody that really respects firearms? You know what I'm talking about? And then if you're joking around and you point a gun at somebody, even if it's not even loaded, and they're like, don't you ever do that again. 
Why? Because they respect the power of this thing that you have in your hand. And if you'll do it jokingly now, you may do it jokingly at the wrong time and somebody's going to get killed. We have to have that same kind of respect, that same kind of fear and trembling for the handling of the word of God and for our understanding of what God is up to inside of us at any one moment or time. The Bible says, when you hear today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. We need to be awake to the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in you, forming you into the image of Christ Jesus. And if we hear the voice, the warning of the Holy Spirit, just that little nudge of the Holy Spirit, and we're like, eh. Every time you do that, you are dulling your hearing. You are hardening your heart. And it is very hard to go back the other way and be softened. There will come a day after having ignored the Holy Spirit for a very long time where it is extremely difficult to hear the voice of God. And that's when you'll stop growing. Does that make sense? So here he says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Christ Jesus, our connection to Jesus, to the glory and the praise of God. Remember, Jesus said, my father is glorified when you bear much fruit. We talked about this last time, I think. And when it says you bear much fruit, we, we said that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And absolutely it is. It is how, to what level you are reflecting the character and the nature of God into the world. That's the fruit. And when we are reflecting the character and nature of Jesus, God the Father is glorified. I think about Mother Teresa a lot because the whole world recognizes her as someone that is reflecting the character and nature of God in our world. And we've had leaders of nations who have bowed down before this little woman who never owned a thing in her life. but her holiness, not anything she accomplished in and of herself. And she would say that to you. She's passed away now, I think, isn't she? If she isn't, she's a billion years old. I'm pretty sure she has. The holiness that she carried in and of herself would affect people just when she was close to them. And it was not, it was not because she was some kind of special person beyond the fact that she had just humbled herself before the Lord and allowed God to do what he wanted with her in her life. And we should be the kind of people that carry the holiness of God for the glory of God and not for the glory of me or the glory of you. Because that's the problem the church has run into so many times. So many times the church has carried some ounce of righteousness around like it's our badge of honor. Well, I don't go see rated R movies. Mm. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. So take that. <laughs> you know, and the church encounters people who are broken and suffering and who don't understand the glory and the, and the beauty of God. And they're like, ew, you're dirty. As if they weren't. 
That is not how you are righteous unto the glory of God. Righteousness under the glory of God is righteousness that reaches across from a sick person who's found medicine to hand medicine to another sick person. We're not reaching down to pull people up. I hate that picture. Because you're not above anybody. And don't you dare think you are. You're the same as them, but Jesus has just been good to you before he was good to them. But he wants to do the same thing for them that he's done for you. And for some of you who are like, I've been in the church my whole life and I've never, like, I've never smoked anything in my life, okay? I'm not saying that as a boast. Because the truth is, if I had grown up in a different family, I probably would have been a drug addict. Who knows? Yeah, I have this unbelievable blessing in my life that I grew up in a pastor's home and, and so I know what it means to live a wise life. That is a gift that was given to me, a beautiful gift that was given to me. I did not earn it and I cannot claim any glory from it. And all the things that I received through that, I can't claim that either. I didn't earn those. Nah, those were gifts of grace that were given to me and all I can do is say, I hope I live up to them. Because to whom much is given, much is required. So I hope that I live up to them. Because I have a gigantic legacy that's sitting here. It's being handed to me and handed to my children through me. And oh God, I hope I carry it well. I have to live for the glory of God, not for the glory of Josh. And I need to understand that that's where I am. So I need to teach a class to the glory of God, not to the glory of Josh. I need to go and do other, any other kinds of ministry that I do to the glory of God and not to the glory of Josh. And one of the ways that we do that is to stay incredibly mindful of the process that brought us to this moment. And the gifts that have been given us our entire life that brought us to this moment because you are not a Christian because you're a good person. You are a Christian because Jesus saved your soul. and You didn't do anything to earn it. We have no right to get arrogant about the process God has walked us through to get to this place because God did it. You didn't. Don't even try and glory in it because you're a fool if you do. We need to constantly, all the time, every day, be living in absolute gratitude and thankfulness to God for the gifts that he's given us and the life that we've lived up until this point and the fact that we're standing in his salvation in this moment and we need to be living in awe and blown away by the fact, oh my gosh, God brought me to this place. And not for one moment should we ever, number one, be excited about me. Boy, I'm so glad I'm on God's team. Boy, God should be glad about that. God should be so happy that I'm on his team. All my talents and abilities. Give me a break. That's number one. We shouldn't get haughty about it. Number two, I had in my head, but now it's gone. <laughs> I don't remember. Maybe I'll remember it later. We have to live in that place of gratitude. We have to live in that place of constant repentance. God did this. Josh did not do this. God did this. And God used all of these people. I preached on faithfulness the other day. And I stood in the pulpit of my church and cried like a little girl the, through the entire sermon. Why? Because I'm looking around in the room 
And I see people that have been living a life of faithfulness to the, to the glory of God for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. I have sitting in my congregation, I have a, uh, two pastoral couples, one of which has been, they have been ordained Assembly of God ministers for almost 60 years. They were pastors in the church in Angola for 40 years before they retired. They planted that church. They grew it to be one of the biggest churches in Angola. And they were full of integrity the entire time. There was no questions about money. There was no questions about whether or not he ever did anything with anybody. He began strong and finished strong. Do you know how rare that is? And there he is sitting in my congregation listening to me preach. I am this puny little guy. And here he is sitting there. And I just, I couldn't honor Daryl and Janice Beck more than I, than they planted the church in Huntington and then they planted the church in Angola, both of which are still alive and moving to the glory of God. Hundreds of men and women have come up through that ministry and been discipled. This region, this world has been changed because of those two people. Do you guys know Gene Fiesel? Yeah. Where's Tabor at? Yeah, he kind of knows him a little bit. A little bit. Gene was the youth pastor for Daryl Beck for multiple years. That was one of his first ministry assignments in Angola. That's just one more fruit of this man's ministry. And he's sitting in my church. What am I doing preaching to him? I need to sit down and shut up. And I would, except he keeps telling me, I don't want to preach. Go ahead. <laughs> to the glory of God. To the praise of God. Verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren. Okay, we're stepping out of the prayer now. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So, we're going to continue. He, he's just moving to the next thought. He's thinking, I want to live my life to the glory and praise of God. Now, verse 12, my circumstances. His circumstances are that he's in prison. As he writes this, he's sitting in Rome with shackles around his ankles. And it was kind of a house arrest kind of a thing. But he was chained to a guard night and day in Rome, awaiting his time before Caesar. That's where he was at this moment as he's writing this. And we also know he didn't write these by hand. He would dictate them to someone. But, okay, he's not going, please pray I'll be set free. This ankle chafes so it's just, it's, no, that's not, it's, it's not, you know, I mean, he doesn't care about that. He goes, he says, I want you to know. I know you have compassion for me. Remember, this is the Philippian church that sent somebody to be with Paul while he was there in prison. And he says, and I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater purposes of the gospel. And I'm excited about that. Even my imprisonment is glorifying Jesus, and there isn't anything I would like more. That is crazy. How many of you have said that recently about some unfortunate circumstance in your life? Think about it. 
We ran out of half and half today, but hopefully it's for the greater purpose of the gospel. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Have you ever, instead of running to complaint, asked yourself the question, can this be used for the greater purpose of the gospel? Maybe you ran out of half and half because there's somebody at the grocery store that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're supposed to go right now and get some half and half and talk to the cashier about Jesus. I don't know. But I will say this, nothing that happens to you happens on accident. Maybe we shouldn't do the U-scan. Robs you of a chance to witness, doesn't it? Except, you know, whatever. I think you, when you do that well, that's a nice witness for the Lord. The people that come to the U-scan with 80,000 things and you're like... You know, bing, 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 you know, and then they're like sneaking things into the cart, you know, uh, anyway. But he's not upset about his imprisonment. His aim is being reached, the greater progress of the gospel. This is all he wants to see happen, and it is the point of his entire life. He's perhaps also telling the church that just because he's in prison does not mean that the grace and power of God has left him. Ooh, that's interesting. Hey, I know I'm in prison, and that might feel, that might make you feel like I've been defeated, but I am not defeated. I am here because God put me here, and I'm excited to see God's purpose move through this circumstance. When you see leaders who get sick, or you see leaders that go through really rough time, sometimes we kind of look at that and we're like, well, I guess they weren't doing as good as we thought they were. <laughs> Wrong. Nothing happens to us on accident. By the way, he wrote the letters of Ephesians and Colossians also from this prison. I am thanking God for that prison. It slowed down Paul enough to write some letters that I could read 2,000 years later. Okay? I'm grateful for the Roman prison that sat Paul on his butt long enough to dictate three letters that I needed to read. Amen? Amen? Okay. Verse 13. So my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. This place of difficulty has become an opportunity for influence. Oh, come on now. We are a people of the good news. And nothing happens to us on accident. And nothing happens to us that God does not allow. So our places of difficulty are doorways to greater influence. And we need to see them that way. Our moments of trouble are not annoyances we need to roll our eyes at and say, why does this always happen to me? No. Our moments of difficulty, the things that we walk through, are doorways to greater influence. I want to ask you a question. And I'm serious about this. Did Jesus resent the cross? It's a simple question. Talking about the most painful thing that can possibly happen to a human being, happening to a person who did absolutely nothing wrong ever, Was Jesus' response to that unjust pain? God, I don't know. I just want to give up. Why would you do this to me? 
And in the middle of his most painful moment, he, he senses an absence of the presence of God. Or did he? That's a good question. We can talk about it some other time. I think he was... I don't think God turned his face from Jesus. I think he was quoting Psalm 122 because that book was the prayer book of Jesus and he quotes it all through the New Testament. And if you go read Psalm 22, I think it's 22, not 122. It's one of those. It's either 122 or 22. If you go read it, it starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where it starts. But by the end, it says, the la one of the last verses of that chapter says, he has not turned his face from me. I know you've been taught that God turned away from Jesus on the cross, but I'm telling you, the Bible does not say that. Go find it. The Bible does not say that. We take it from Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he wasn't telling us God had forsaken him. He was quoting one of his favorite Psalms. Don't you sing songs to yourselves that are comforting in moments of trouble and trial? Don't you do that? I remember I was going... We were riding the uh, the, mag the Millennium Force in Cedar Point. We're going up the hill, you know, we're going up the hill, and I hear my son next to me singing this, uh, this song from the 80s. Who can say where the... <laughs> and I went... <laughs> He's like, it just makes me feel better, Dad. <laughs> What? It was Aiden. It was Aiden. He's the my second born. That's fantastic. <laughs> but we do that, don't we? There's songs that are comforting to us. Jesus was this was a song that was comforting to him. Plus it was obviously I'll read I'll read it to you real quick. I wanna I think it's Psalm twenty two, not Psalm one twenty two. Uh I love Cedar Point. I, I, got, I only got to go to Cedar Point twice last summer, but the summer before that I went five times. The summer before that I went six or seven times. When I was a, when I was a youth pastor, I would go. The church used to pay for me to have a pass to Cedar Point because I would take at least five or six youth trips to Cedar Point, and we would do it with different groups. I would do, we did the big group like junior high and senior high trips. We did those two junior high trips and senior high trips. I would do a youth leader trip just for the youth leaders. I used to do a homeschool guys trip that was before everybody else got out of school. Was there, did you have enough people to do that? I did. I and mean, we only took like six or eight, but that was still enough. Yeah. But I was like, you guys, you guys don't really go to school, so let's go to Cedar Point. And all their parents were like, yeah, you go ahead. Okay, it's, it is Psalm 22, not Psalm 122. I, and I, I love C points. But it starts right, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and 
you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. Hmm. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Those are the mocks. Yeah. Yet you who are yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. Oh, you uh, on you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. Have you been my God? Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. That, that's a picture of the demonic, by the way. They're open. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Exactly. My heart melts like wax, which is exactly how Jesus died. His heart exploded in his chest. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. He's thirsty. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, also a picture of, of the demonic. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments amongst them. And they and for my clothing they cast lots. I mean, come on now, people. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver me from my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from from me, but has heard when I cried to him. I need to go take a laugh. This is a psalm that was written hundreds of years before Jesus, and it was fulfilled in stunning detail. Exactly. <laughs> I, just, I just need to pull the Jesus was remembering and was pointing back and singing this song because over and over again, my, my life sucks right now, but God will save me. And he did, did he not? Okay. In our places of difficulty, in our places of fear and brokenness and pain, this is where we need to live. Yes, it hurts. There's nothing wrong with saying I'm in pain. In fact, you need to. You must. Don't be one of these people like, oh, no, I'm fine. My legs are broken, but I'm fine. I'm good. <laughs> Don't do that. We are to minister to one another. And how is anybody going to know how to minister to you unless you let them know? Okay. But in the midst of that, they should also hear us say, but God is good. God is on the throne. God knows what he's doing, and I trust him. Balancing our admissions of weakness with the statement of God's strength to rescue you keeps you from becoming the guy that no one wants to talk to because they constantly complain. Uh, have a guy in my church for a while. Mondays are my day off, and I don't answer the church phone on my day off. 
Okay, I, I don't. They, they can leave a message. I will listen to the message. And if it's an emergency, then I will do something. Um, there was one particular guy that he would call me every Monday morning at like 8 o'clock in the morning. And if I answered the phone, it was, my life sucks, and this is happening, and that's happening, and God's not answering, and no, 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 no. That's all, and I'm just like, you are sent from Satan. Because <laughs> I'm tired. I'm exhausted. It's Monday. I'm wiped out. You know, this is my only Sabbath, and you're calling me, and you're just sapping the life out of me. Because I, now I have to stir my tired self up. To be like, Jesus loves you. He is working. I know it's hard. I know you can't see it, but you can trust him. And then people argue with you. Well, yeah, but it'd be nice if he were, nah, nah, nah. I know that's nice for you to say, Pastor, but blah, blah, blah. And I just, more than once, I had to just rebuke him. Be like, you will not speak those words in accusation against my God. You will not. As a pastor, you have to have this mix of compassion and I will smack you. <laughs> you just do. It's necessary. Because our places of influence, our doorway, our places of difficulty are doorways to influence, to greater influence every time. And Jesus' greatest place of, of difficulty became the thing that changed the universe. Let us not forget. This is God's doing and not man's. We've got to understand that God allows suffering into our lives. Yes, he does. He allows us to suffer. But it is not about punishment. It's always, always, always about promotion. Suffering in the life of the Christian is about removing the influence of sin and increasing the influence of the kingdom in us. That is what it's for. And our response to our suffering is what makes the difference. If you respond with faith, then there are treasures to be found in that valley. But if you respond with fear or with an unformed understanding of the love of your God for you, you will be robbed of all the beauty of that moment. It would just become another arrow of accusation you're going to try and hurl against God and everything else. Verse 14, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. In other words, he was his imprisonment and his attitude in his imprisonment was giving people courage. People would go and meet him like, I'm going to go minister to Paul. And they would leave encouraged. Can't tell you how many times I've done a hospital visit with an older saint, and I have walked in, and they are literally on death's door, but they grab my arm and go, let me pray for you. 
there to be an encouragement to me. They could pass away at any moment and there being an encouragement to me. And I leave the room three feet off the floor like, woo, let's do this. But then I've also walked into the room of people that like, I broke my big toe. Okay. And they're just whining and complaining. You know, and I'm just like, ugh, gross. Why am I even here? My, my mom used to tell people, get a real problem. Oh, she's such a grace-filled woman. See, we have, we have my dad, who is pastor to the, like, top of his head. He's just mercy, 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 mercy. He's, let me come alongside you in the midst of your pain. I want to walk with you, whatever. And then there's my mom that's like, prophet all the way to the top of her head. And so she's, and she's like, if you hadn't been so stupid, you wouldn't have fallen down. And she just keeps on walking. Because that's those two, <laughs> that's those two gifts in operation. And they beautifully just, because the guy that's too merciful, that's just like, oh, it's okay. It just doesn't tell people to get off their butts and get moving. Okay. Needs the, the prophet that that's all they say is get off your butt and keep moving. <laughs> okay. You got to just put those two things together and it's this beautiful uh, relationship that they have. My mom was the kind of mom that would say, you know, if you fall out of that tree and break your leg, don't come crying to me. <laughs> my mom's saying you getting arrested we're not <laughs> like, oh I've told my kids that many times oh my gosh do not call me from jail I will not come get you, you. same thing with my mom she got arrested we ain't gonna get my parents always told me, unless you're bleeding or you're dying, get up, dust it off, you're fine. That's right. Yeah. Even when you're bleeding or dying. I broke my wrist and my dad had to go shoot hoops with my cousins. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know your wrist was broken, be honest. There was, it was that swollen and purple. He said, go shoot hoops, it's okay. <laughs> Walk around, son. Walk around. <laughs> your bone's sticking out of your leg? Walk around, son. Walk around. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fairly certain that my legs are broken, but let me try to stand. Yes, they're definitely broken. Okay. Do you know what I'm referring to? Yes. It's from the Austin Powers movies. Anyway, Will, Fer Will Ferrell kept getting killed, but then he wouldn't actually be dead, you know. They'd drop him down into the sink. Fire everywhere. And then all of a sudden, he's, he's like... Hello? <laughs> I'm still alive. I'm just very badly burned. Okay. Verse 15. Some to be sure, this is a really interesting verse. Okay. Some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. So in other words, there are people out there preaching the gospel, but they have really bad motivation. Like their hearts are not in the right place. They are preaching the gospel for the wrong reason. So there's some, some are that way, but some, but some are doing it for the right reasons. Okay. So some were glad Paul was in prison so they no longer had to compete with him in the gospel. It's, <laughs> my notes in here was, wow, that's so 
dot 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 normal because <laughs> isn't that true like <laughs> you know there is something inside the the heart of every pastor that when another pastor's church like starts imploding that you're kind of like well i'm glad i don't have to deal with them anymore <laughs> I know that's gross and ugly. I know it is. It's just disgusting. But guess what, guys? This is real, okay? And anytime I see anything like that in my own heart, I'm just like, ew! Gross! Oh, gross! Gross! Get it out of me! Jesus! Ew! 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 Look at this! <laughs> we had... Uh, we had... We had... A few months ago, we had uh, somebody that was, that was leaving the church. Um, they were really... Not just leaving the church, but leaving the Lord. And you know, it was—it's a small church, so everybody knows when somebody's not there. And, and um, I was praying for them, and I'm like, oh, "Lord, bring them back in." And I was just really asking the Lord to win this person back. And uh, the Lord said to me, "You need to be careful because some of your passion." in this prayer is that it makes you look bad that they're leaving. And I was just like, Oh, <laughs> oh. I was like, Lord, if that's there at all, please, I'm sorry. Forgive me. But just for, you know, as a human in front of you guys, I mean, that was that most of my passion about this person. No, no, I love this man. And it hurt me that he had made a decision to literally just leave leave the church, leave Jesus. He wasn't just going to another church. He was leaving Jesus. And, and I had done some discipling with this guy. And it just, it hurt me that that was happening. But there was a, there was a tiny little thing in there that was, people know I discipled this guy. And now they see him leaving. And what does that say about me? Isn't that Gross. Now you're all like, you're a sick weirdo. Like, but I'm just being completely transparent with you, which is what I said I would do. All of us have that. Okay? And we need to we need to be watching out for it. And we need to be willing to say, Lord, there's a oh, there's that thing. Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, forgive me. Lord, make this about my love for this man and make me make this about my love for the people he's connected to and how hurt they're going to be. And let none of this be about that. That's just gross. So some people were glad Paul was in prison because they no longer had to compete with him. And some were looking to his example and seeing that they, that Paul had so much joy in the midst of a trial that God was taking care of Paul in the midst of the circumstances. And they also saw that God could still use Paul even in prison. Now, verse 16, he says, The latter, those are the ones with goodwill, that are preaching the gospel from goodwill, out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So those who are not competing with Paul know that he has a purpose and God is using his circumstances for that purpose. But the former, the ones that have bad motives, Proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. I wrote, it fascinates me that there were those who already were using the gospel to propel themselves forward. There are people that look at ministry as a career opportunity. 
or a way of making money. Although, I don't, I don't know who those people are. I, I, whoever you are, I, you know, you want to call me and let me know how you make money in the kingdom? Because I have not figured that out. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> Every single time somebody comes to Master's, I hear so many stories of their parents or their grandparents. You find a place that's going to give you money. There's no money in it. It's the truth, oh except for no, no, yeah, I get that. I'm just there saying. are people who make a lot of money in ministry. I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> not Jimmy Swagger. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. Anyway. <laughs> uh, the point is not to point fingers at anybody else. The point is to say, God, guard me. Because let me tell you, there's a, lot, there's a whole lot of reasons to go into ministry that are not good reasons to go into ministry. Money is on, is on a lower rung of those. The truth is, the primary, reason, the primary bad reason why people go into ministry is that it brings attention to them. They like an audience. Another really bad reason people go into ministry is that it makes them feel good when they help people. Now, does that mean you shouldn't feel good about helping people? No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is just because you feel good when you help people does not mean you should be in full-time ministry. And not only that, you need to be really careful because you should be serving with without bringing glory to yourself, like we just said earlier. And if this is about your reputation or the way people look at you after you've ministered or the way that, or the things that people say to you after you teach a class or sing a song or whatever, if you're in it for any of that, you need to get out of it now. And you need to get down to the base rock with Jesus and be like, Jesus, this is ugly and I need this out of my life. And when you finally figured all that out, then maybe you can give your, your talents back to the Lord. But please, please, I'm begging you. Don't be in ministry because you want to be a star. And you want people to look up to you and call you pastor or say that you're anointed or all of that. We're not in this to bring attention to ourselves. We're in this to bring attention to Jesus. We really are. And if there was a way to do this anonymously, <laughs> I might do it. You know? <laughs> you know, just might just walk around, my face my face is just blurred, you know. You know, you don't need to know who I am. You need to know who Jesus is. <laughs> if I could do that, I might do it. But the truth is we can't do that because real ministry is about relationships that you have with people. You're not allowed to you know, it's about connections. And think about the ministries that have really blessed you. Yes, I'm sure you've heard some good sermons that have given you some good information. But the ministries that have really blessed you are the people that spent time in your life. The people that actually walked side by side with you. And have cared about you over time. I know that's true for me.
So he says, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Now, if I'm in Paul's position and I am kind of paying the price, I'm sitting in prison so the gospel can go forward. And I went to cities where the gospel has never been preached. And I have been in prison and I've been beaten and I've been, you know, mistreated and I've been whatever. And I've, and I've never asked a penny for anything. And my whole life has been poured out like a drink offering every day for the glory of the gospel. And I'm sitting my butt in prison. And then there's these hot shots who are out there and they're in it to make money and they're in it to bring glory to themselves and they're in it for all these other reasons. If I'm Paul, I'm calling down the fire of God on those guys. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm, I'm like, Lord, just Give him lockjaw and nausea at once. I just pray that you would. You know? Come on, you never heard. It'll come on. Okay, so, you know, that's. If I'm the Apostle Paul, I'm just like, I'm, I'm, that's, that's where I'm at, you know? I'm like. I'm like, may all your toenails be ingrown, you know? I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm just... <laughs> okay, but that's not where Paul is. That's not where Paul is. Paul's not even mad. Paul is rejoicing. Hey, the gospel's going out. I'm excited about that. These guys are out there. They haven't paid up a price at all for the position that they carry, they're a bunch of millennials. They're out there. They, <laughs> oh, I love that. In a room full of millennials, how completely flat that went. That was so great. <laughs> because you guys are like, watch it, buddy. So, <laughs> but don't you hear that from the from from the generation before you? You don't even know what was paid to get you where you are. That thing. I blame, I blame the boomers seven blocks and it's snow to get to school mentality. You know, I. <laughs> the, here's my thing, guys. You can disarm that easily by showing honor. You can just take that weapon right out of the enemy's hands by showing honor. That's all that's missing. And if that generation feels respected by you, they will be your greatest allies. And I have some choice things to say to that generation too. I'm a part of that micro generation in between the Xers and the millennials. That's the truth. I am. There's like a, like a five year window there where I'm not a Gen Xer and I'm not a millennial. I'm right there. It's Mac and Mill. This generation that complains so much about you, first of all, I find it funny because the generation before them complained so much about them, and they've completely forgotten about it. Every generation does that. Please don't do that. When you're 
in their position and there's people coming up under you that have a different set of values than you because they're a different generation than you, don't point fingers at them and be like, they're so screwed up. Just don't do it. Okay? But anyway, I have other things to say to them and I do whenever I can. But I want to say to you, show them honor. They deserve it. Show them honor. And I know that in your generation, and mine included, I'm not exempt from this. We feel like I'll respect you when you earn it. I'll respect you when you show me respect. I will respect you, right? Isn't that how we feel? And we're tired of people banging on things and telling us we should respect them. When you've done nothing, you have not spoken into my life, you've given me nothing, you've done nothing, you don't even care about me. You don't even know who I am. And here, you're pointing at me saying, you should respect me. I don't think so. Trust me, I know how that feels. That's been my entire life. People pointing at me because I'm a symbol of a generation and saying, you, you're so disrespectful. I'm going, first of all, obviously you don't know me because I'm not. But second, my generation feels... Like, if you come alongside me and you have personal impact in my life, I will respect you. In fact, I think the millennial generation is the most loyal generation in the history of the planet. But only to those who have earned their respect. They will go to hell and back for somebody that has stepped into their life and said, I want to have a relationship with you and actually been there. What you guys don't respect is organizational titles, positions of power. You don't care about that. It's not interesting to you. I don't care that you're the reverend doctor of blah, blah, blah. Makes no difference to me, Dave. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's like, I don't care how many, I don't care about the alphabet soup behind your name. It's not interesting to me. I don't care that you have the PhD and the ROTC and the whatever. <laughs> I don't even know. I, that's, that's something completely different. But anyway, <laughs> I'm just throwing letters out there. Okay. That's not important to us. None of that stuff is important to us. You want to know why? Because it hasn't ever done anything for us. Okay. But if we will step up and if we will be the bigger person and if we will show honor to someone because they are a person. And if we will lead with respect. Their response would be a whole lot different to you. And I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation with somebody from that generation where they spend a little bit of time with me and I show them as much respect as I know how to show them. And at the end of that time, they look at me and go, you make me rethink how I feel about your generation. Anyway, the Apostle Paul did not take that attitude of the older generation versus the younger. He said, I'm just excited the gospel is going forward. I want the message to go out even through imperfect vessels because Lord knows I'm an imperfect vessel. And he rejoices because God will use anything he could use to further his purposes. And Paul chooses to rejoice in the Lord. He says, look, I don't, you know what? 
I don't care. I would pay the price again for other people to trade on my name and my reputation because it means the name of Jesus is going forward. And that's all I care about. Does that make sense? Are you all mad at me for my... Uh... No, I just have an internal conflict going on. What is it? I don't know. I, I'm, like, I'm just like, I don't have a process in my brain all the way. So like, I haven't even made a decision on it. Like The idea of like human being respect and like physician respect and like like wholeheartedly like right off the bat agree that like respect on a human level but there's that internal conflict of like if someone's position respected if they haven't done anything with it yeah that conflict going on trust me with this particular president it's extremely difficult for me and I'm not making any political statement I'm just saying this yeah, this person <laughs> This man who is in the office which I respect, this human being, I find it very difficult to respect yeah. him. And I, it is a war in my heart right now. And then I had a guy come to a men's event that we did last week with a Make America Great Again hat on. And I just so wanted to rip that hat off and stomp on it. <laughs> I really did. And, and, but that's so inappropriate and it's so wrong. I'm in the wrong. My attitude towards it is wrong. I have, my attitude is a sinful, broken attitude. My attitude towards President Trump, please call him that because that's who he is. Just speaking of him by his last name, I used to get on people when they would do that with President Obama. Another man I had a very difficult time respecting. People like, Obama did this, and I would say, I think you mean President Obama? <laughs> he is the president. We should respect the office if we respect nothing else. And my next question is, have you prayed for them as much as you've complained about them. Yeah. I guess my conflict is still like, if you're not respecting the office, like, can you still respect other human being or are they just together? You know? That, that's just where my conflict is. Like, I don't know. I just haven't decided and I don't know how to decide. I think we just need to choose to be a people who honor people period. And realize the truth <laughs> that even the people we find it the most difficult to respect are a gift from God to us. Like at some level have to earn respect in some senses though. I mean a man who throws paper towels over uh, a desolated country and um, you are you are welcome to disrespect things that people do and say but that doesn't mean that we remove 
respect for their personhood or their office. We're talking about President Trump. First, we need to be praying for him constantly. Does that mean that we don't, in the most loving and productive way, here's, here's my issue. How do I, as a Christian, as a pastor, how do I speak to my church about an activity like that? Or a man who has influence in the entire world, but uses profanity to talk about people, and says things on Twitter that are unforgivable. How it is... That's why I'm saying this is a war in my heart. It absolutely is. He's complaining about kneeling football players when we have a nuclear power that is threatening our nation. And he doesn't tweet about that. Or if he does, it's this. The times he has tweeted about that, maybe I don't want him tweeting about that. Right now, I just wish they would take his phone away. I mean, really, truly, I do. Okay? He's poking fun at a nation who has nuclear capability and he's the president of the United States. And he's saying things like, you just watch, something's coming. I'm sorry. That is a threat of war from the leader of the free world. I, I, I cannot respect those actions. Even if I agree, and the truth is I agree with Probably half of his his United States agenda, his domestic agenda, half of his domestic agenda, I'm, I am I would be a cheerleader for. And when we have a God who commands us to be kind to the alien that comes to us for shelter. And yet we as a nation are rejecting them wholesale. This was prior to President Trump even taking office. We have to be a people that stand for Jesus but we can't feed the rage machine. Does that make sense? We have to be a people who are speaking in opposition to things that are clearly of the enemy and clearly not of the gospel. But in the way we speak opposition, we have to show love. It is not an easy place to live. Love for the person who is speaking those hateful things at the same time as repudiating the things that they said. How do you do that? I do not know. I don't know. <laughs> mostly, mostly I've just not said anything political on, on social media at all. Except these are the kinds of things that I do. I will just post scripture. <laughs> You're going to argue with the Bible? Okay. I, that's all I'll do. 
And I won't even comment. People be like, what are you saying? And I'll be like, I'm not saying anything. The Bible has a lot to say, though. Just saying. Jesus I said. Exactly. You know, I when when President Trump tweeted about the North Korea situation, and he was talking about calling calling the leader of another nation. Called him Rocket Man. He's quoting Elton John at him. I mean, he all but called him like he all but used racial slurs. I mean, he was right on the edge, and I think. Maybe he would have. <sighs> okay, he's doing that in front of the United Nations. All I had to say in response was, blessed are the peacemakers. They should be called the children of God. <laughs> what else can I say? And that's all I said. That's all I said. I didn't need to say anything else. I don't need to inject my in opinion. So, it, so you, is it your way that you handle it then? Okay. I try and... I will not have a political discussion with anyone on Facebook or Twitter. I won't do it. It is the wrong place to have a political discussion. They don't, it, it never goes well. You know it's true. Oh, I know it's true. I, this is a very, I am too. You Storm's page is just like a, a war between him and Monty. All the time. I, I, love, I love my father, but I just cannot see eye to eye in one of those things. I know. I know. I, I 